All right, we're back. Another episode of Backlash Podcast. I'm Jeff with Team Rhino Outdoors. And if you still need gear to get out fishing, which hopefully you do, check out TeamRhinoOutdoors.com. And we have co-hosts again today, Brad and Carrie Hoppy with Muskie Mayhem Tackle. And if you still need gear from them, check out MuskieMayhemTackle.com. Hopefully lots of guys are still out fishing. Brad and Carrie, I would ask you guys how fishing has been, but it's literally been like 24 hours since I talked to you. And I know none of us have been on the water because unlike previous episodes, we're actually on the ball today. We had a guest scheduled that, you know, we'd been talking about for a while. Our guest today is going to be uh, Jeremy Smith, Linder Media, Angling Buzz. He's kind of a big deal, much bigger deal than me. So we're going to talk to him in a little while. And I think our, I think we're going to, We'll have to hash it over with him exactly what we're going to talk about, but I think we're going to talk about fall trolling a little bit. We're going to talk about his duties at Linder Media, and I think we're going to talk about fall trolling. Is that kind of what we decided, Brad? Yeah, that's what it sounded like in our text. You know, I unfortunately wasn't able to cross the Canadian border this fall, but uh, I think we're going to talk about some shield lights and doing some trolling up in that area, and hopefully guys can get back up there next year hopefully that would be nice it'd be nice if everything went back to normal at some point but at this point i don't even know what normal is so um i guess at that point we're just gonna keep plugging away keep doing what we do so um i don't know you guys got much else to add to an intro although i, was, I, I just got a text from jeremy that said he's ready to go so we can probably get him on the phone at any point but I don't, uh, I mean, like I said, this intro is kind of weird because not much. there's not much for me to talk about because nothing happened between yesterday and today. Yeah, for sure. 24 hours later, we're doing it again. So let's get him on the horn. All right, let's do it. All right, our guest today is Jeremy Smith. Jeremy is with Linder Media Productions. I believe he's also with Angling Buzz. Jeremy, thanks for taking some time out of your schedule. How are things going today? They're great, great. Thank you, uh, thank you for having me. This is this is pretty awesome. I've listened to a number of podcasts, and you've got some pretty stellar anglers on here, so it's cool to be a part of it. Yeah, well, we're certainly certainly glad that when we reached out to you, that you were able to do it. And uh, I know it took us a little bit of time to get one together, but I'm glad that we made it work. So, Jeremy, we typically for the first time guests, we looking to get some background information that way our listeners kind of have an idea who they're talking to. Why don't you go over, uh, we'll talk about your, your roles with Linder Media, and then why don't you talk a little bit about, you know, what uh, got you so much into the fishing industry? Sure, yeah. So, uh, Linder Media Productions, we do a, uh, we, we focus on sport fishing, um, sport fishing content. So, work for the famous Linder family that uh, started in Fisherman and um, uh, been at this, I think this is uh, 18 years they've been at Linder Media Productions. I've been here for 15 of it. And uh, I do a little bit of everything here. So we produce um, 67 half-hour television shows a year, and then we do a couple hundred YouTube videos along with a number of different commercial pieces. So we're in the field and on the water doing all kinds of stuff all the time. Uh, a few of the series that people might recognize is we do uh, Linder's Fishing Edge, which is an outdoor channel exclusive show. We do Linder's Angling Edge, which we distribute through a lot of the Fox Sportsnet, the Pursuit Channel, World Fishing Network. We do a series for Lund Boats called The Ultimate Fishing Experience. We do another one for Ontario called The Ontario Experience. And then we do uh, a series called Angling Buzz. That's, uh, that's Midwest specific. We shoot that uh, the summer version of the open water version. We do that in um, May, June, and May, June, and July. And that's all weekly stuff so that shot that week and aired that week. 
And then we also do uh, an online only uh, angling buzz ice, which just uh, launched last week. So we've got our hands on a lot of stuff. We fish for everything, whether it's crappies or carp or cats or muskies, my favorite or bass, you name it. We're on the, on the water chasing a lot of, uh, a lot of fish all, all the time. So keeps us pretty, keeps us pretty busy. Let's say. Yeah, I'd say. So, Kerry, if we don't watch out, he's going to drag you into, or you're going to drag him into talk about crappies and bluegills and all that stuff. I know we haven't had a lot of crappie talk lately, but Kerry loves to talk crappies and bluegills, so if we don't watch it, she's going to drag that conversation that direction. Oh, you can call me anytime to talk about that. I don't catch anything. Yeah, they're... Uh, it's only bluegills, Jeff. No crappies? I know. We don't crappie fish too much. Occasionally, we catch one, but... Usually if you target bluegills, you don't catch crappies and vice versa. Right. Well, I wasn't sure if you were actually a crappie, you know, you were going to go out and target those. I would have thought that you would have went down that road. Bluegills, interestingly enough, I, I, I do enjoy fishing, but one of the, the crazy things about loving muskies and, and just loving everything, but I think in our state of Minnesota today, it's harder to get a one-pound bluegill than it is a 50-inch muskie. Some places, they're, they're, still, they're still around, but man, if, you know, doing it for work trying to go land on giant bluegills is one of the biggest challenges that uh, i'll have in the course of the year yeah i told you jeff <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah. well i have a difficult time a catching record, jeff you started this i started what the bluegill conversation oh you mean today yeah yeah. Well, I haven't had you on the conver- you know, on the podcast in a while. So we, you know, me and Brad, we like to stick it right to the muskies for the most part, fish with teeth, and then you like to drag us over into the weeds. So I thought, hey, I'll give you an opportunity. Jeremy's a multi-species angler. You know, that way you can maybe help, you know, get some information from him on chasing down these 10-inch bluegills. Yeah, I'm telling you, if you the best multi-species angler if you multi-species fish you're going to be a better musky angler well it certainly sounds that way i mean because jeremy he's pretty much chasing it all based off of what he just told us so jeremy one thing i noticed or i heard you say was uh you had a you did a series for ontario angling you know with everything closed down this year how did that did were you, were you still able to make that shoot or not no, no. So that was a that, that was a big summer for us. So we've uh, Canadian tourism has been a, a huge customer of ours and has been for a number of years. And um, I generally am up there for you know at least eight weeks every every year. And uh, so this year it, it wasn't in the cards. So fortunately, we have enough content. Um, they're so optimistic up there that next year is is going to be a go. So rather than just um, lay off the gas and uh, pushing. Uh, tourism and the great fishing they have up there. We're, we're basically re-editing and doing kind of some best of stuff for that series, which uh, actually will be really good because, you know, how, how things go, some shoots are awesome, some are a little tougher, but this is this is pretty cool where we got to dive through some of the stuff that never saw the light of day in the in the first round and put all this together, and it's, um, it's so far that the series is looking really, really good, and it's uh, obviously a very special place with incredible fishing, so we're very optimistic that uh, hopefully sometime after the first year, things will open up and we can get back to uh, somewhat somewhat normal. And, uh, uh, you know, the people up there really, really count on tourism. So I know we're friends with a lot of them. So we really hope that uh, things open up and uh, they'll be gracious enough to let us enjoy the great fisheries they have up there again soon. So Yeah, I won't argue with that one bit. I mean, I think we all feel bad for, for what they've had to go through this year. 
I know the you know Wisconsin Minnesota guides they've all benefited from it at the expense of everybody over in Canada. So hopefully things will normalize by the time fishing opens up next year and you guys can get up there and enjoy that. And I know there's so many anglers out there that missed out on it this year that are just chomping at the bit to get back up there. Oh, and it's going to be amazing when it, when it happens. Some of my buddies that I, you know, I talk to on a regular basis, it's just drives me nuts. They like to throw it my, throw it my face. Like, Oh, I went out, you know, look at this. 52. That's, you know, as big around as your chest. Oh, look at this one. And you're just like, come on. Come on, it's just like they just go and they catch right now. So no pressure, giant fish. So it's a pretty cool deal. I have a feeling, Jeremy, that uh, you know the, those fish up there with zero pressure. This pretty much for the most part this year. It's going to be kind of interesting what takes place if we can get back up there and muskie fish next year. I, I, I'm I'm so excited about it. I think it's going to be just phenomenal. I mean, you take pressure out of the equation for that that amount of time. I think we're going to have some really big dumb big dumb fish so i'm optimistic and the other thing the walleye guys are going to love it too i mean you just think about all these resorts where every day hundreds of walleyes get killed on these lakes for shore lunch and the walleye fishing too up there is just going to be probably better than anybody's ever seen yeah i would definitely agree with that jeremy it's going to be an interesting year if we get those borders back open yeah it really will be so optimistic I got another quick question for you, Jeremy, and I'm curious, um, when did fishing enter your life, and uh, how did that kind of take place? You know, since I was a, a really little kid, I don't know how old I was. I mean, I was like, you know, just beyond a toddler age, my mom and grandma took me to a creek behind the farm and saw fish down there and whatever. Just I was amazed with fish and caught carp, and then that was really cool, and um we started going to a little resort up near Park Rapids on uh, Little Sand Lake, not far from Mantrap, and fished up, you know, fished up there, really clear water, and that I just I was always fascinated with it, and and uh, ever since I was really little, I, I, that's all I ever wanted to do was fish. I just wanted to be a part of the fishing business, and uh, however I could fish. So when I was in uh, college, I thought, well, how can I how can I do this? I've been knocking on the door of fishermen since I was in high school, seeing if I could get a job and and um, nothing panned out and the lenders had sold in fishermen so I was uh, I was in college at the time so I was knocking at the door there and ended up uh, living in Walker and uh, working for a company called Fishing the Wild Side Chip Weir and Tommy Scarless and I was doing a little work at Reeds. I was going to school at Bemidji State to get a teaching license because I figured if I can't get in I can teach so I could guide in the summer and blah, blah, blah. And Bill Linder was doing, um, our photography for that, for that business. And, um, so I got to know Bill and then, you know, got to know the Linder family a little better. And after a couple of years there, an opportunity opened up down here and voila. Yeah. It's amazing. Those paths that lead you to where you end up. And I, I just thought it would be kind of cool to go down that road. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's just, um, people always ask how do you know, how do you get into the business? You know, what do you do? And there's not really a straight, forward path that you're just gonna you know do this and this this is going to be the result but it's really just persistence and just like musky fishing you stick with it and you've got an idea of what you can do and you build skill sets that are useful to a to a business and things fall into place i would totally agree i i know this is kind of maybe down the a different path but i you know i was in a boat when i was six weeks old my mom and dad liked the fish and uh, of course that that kind of builds a foundation but I think what really hit me was uh, 
I was probably 11 or 12 years old, and I begged my mom and dad to go take me to a marina where Denny Brower was speaking. And for those that don't know Denny Brower, he was a bass master's bass fisherman, tournament fisherman. You know, from that day forward, at 11, 12 years old, I went, wow, I want to be in this industry somehow. And it, it really affected me. But uh, the neat thing is, is about 20-some years later, I was doing a seminar at a different marina, and uh, right next to me doing another seminar was Chad Brower. So I, I had to tell Chad, no to make, make sure you tell your dad that he he, he pretty much ruined my life. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great story. That's awesome, man. It, it is amazing just how those, those things when you're young just stick in your brain, and that's just, you just know, you know, and it's feel fortunate that, you know, you should do that. Like, a lot of people just don't know what, what to do, but when you get that, that passion for fishing, it's just it's just so clear, the path you want to take. It's, there's, there's nothing else, right? Hands down. I would agree completely. So, yeah. Yeah, so that's how, that's how, we, ended up, that's how we ended up on this podcast, I guess, in a nutshell. Hands down. That's, uh, I, I feel fortunate that Jeff uh, had this idea, and here we are. We're doing podcasts now. We're building baits, um, doing some guiding. I, you know, it's a cool deal, and I, I really, uh, it's, it's pretty cool if you can inspire a few people to maybe go down the same path, Jeremy, in this podcast. So, All right, Jeremy. So we talked about Canada and the lack of pressure in Canada. Well, with that comes an opposite effect over here in the United States, why don't you talk a little bit about what you've seen on the water this year as far as pressure goes? Yeah, you know, this isn't uh, even directly related to muskies. This is just fishing in general. Obviously, license sales were up dramatically this year. Participation was, was through the roof. So we, we just saw so many more people participating. And it wasn't just going out muskie fishing and seeing tons of anglers. It was if you're crappie fishing in the spring or you're walleye fishing or, you're, you know, even some of those little honey hole bass lakes up by Brad and Carrie's place. I've seen people fishing where I'd never seen people fishing before. And, you know, muskies are one thing. You just don't encounter that many as a whole. And I mean, they're, they're, they're hard to catch. And in my experience, anyway, so I feel that once they get pressure, they just, they just become more and more difficult to catch. But that's even true with, with bass, you know, and I, I do a lot of bass fishing. It's like, man, all of a sudden these places that were nobody was fishing, all of a sudden you put two, three anglers on there every week and the bite where it could be good go count on catching 50 to 100 good fish at the right time on these places you kind of save for that time period and all of a sudden you're catching 15 or 20 and it's really not this relates to muskies too and it's really not that you're not still a good angler even though you might second guess am i doing things right am i doing things wrong those fish now are just getting shared over more and more people right you can catch them again once they've been caught obviously catching release works but it's it's not the same as going to an undisturbed fishery where a fish hasn't seen a, a jig or a spinnerbait, you know, all season long. You just put something in front of them and they and they bite. Once they once they've been caught, they just get tougher to catch the next time. And so we've got all these different riggings and techniques to catch this, that, and the other things. So, you know, I, I just I from from my perspective, fishing as a whole, not just musky fishing, was was more difficult. And I just feel that it was because the the pressure the the fish were shared among more anglers, and it's great we got more people involved. It was just uh, if if you're used to having a certain bite or knowing that this is how it's going to be, it was just different. The neat thing about this is that we did get maybe more people interested in fishing once again. Um, I, I noticed that different boat dealerships, boat sales were way up. I mean, you couldn't find a used boat on a lot for the most part. It was pretty crazy. 
And as you said, the, uh, the license sales were way up. So, you know, how many of these people do we retain if things go back to normal? That's, that's the big question, right? And I think it was a really cool little tidbit or a year for, for the industry in a whole. I couldn't agree more. And, and, and I think, you know, a lot of this now is going to come back to management of how we manage these resources, not only. So, I mean, just think about this coming in to fishing new this year. And if you can afford a lot of the technology, which a lot of it is very affordable, you can just become good really fast. And so this is putting, you know, a, a ton of stress on our, on our fisheries, even if they're just catch and release fisheries, we're just seeing, seeing more and more pressure. So I'm, I'm really curious to see how, management uh, takes a look look at this and says all right is this a is this a blip on the on the map is this going to be sustained and if it's sustained how do we how do we best manage these these fisheries into the, the future because if you've got a limit i'm just making stuff up on a fish that's 10 and there's only been 10 people fishing for them for the last 50 years and it seems to be doing fine well all of a sudden that limit of 10 and you've got 20 people doing it that's that's not the same you're taking a lot more right so how do we just distribute that catch over these people and, and maintain healthy fisheries? Totally would agree. You know, and there, there's a couple key lakes in the state that I wish we could get going again, <laughs> here in Minnesota anyway, but uh, that really literally take a lot of pressure off the smaller bodies of water. And without some of those big lakes that are really putting out fish, it definitely is pushing the traffic throughout the whole state. Oh, big time, big time. I mean, it's... Uh, We've been having this conversation forever about, you know, how, to, as you guys know, it's been an uphill battle in the state to try to, to try to stock muskies. I've, you know, I've been involved with it a lot, trying to, trying to make headway. And it feels like so often you're just beating your, your head against the wall. And these are decisions we should have made 20 years ago that would influence what the, what the fishing is today. So even if today we decided, you know what, all right, we need to, we need to change change our, our musky stocking ideas and programs. I think it's important that, uh, I, I hope we do, but there's such a lag. And, and when you actually see these things develop that, you know, it, it is really frustrating having been involved with that, which you guys have, have been too, to, to be like, see, this is who we're talking about. It's not, I'm not saying we can ever replicate what happened in the mid 2000s. That would be difficult to do. But even if you could get to 50% of what that was, it would be incredible. And we just haven't done it. I would agree. You know, the thing about it is, is being able to maintain or retain, if you will, some of these new anglers. And if it's challenging, man, you know, you get boredom, you get uh, frustration. And the next thing you know, they're starting to leave the sport as well. So that's a concern as well, being a manufacturer. Oh, for sure. And musky fishing isn't supposed to be easy. I mean, it's, it, you know, it shouldn't be that you go out and you can catch six or ten every time you go out and half of them are 50 inches. I mean, that's, those are unrealistic expectations. But, I mean, it happened to me a couple times this year fishing with good anglers where I put in 40 hours and we'd get a bite. I mean, that's fishing from 4 in the morning until 1030 at night, you know, doing it a couple days in a row. And you get a bite. You're like, come on, these are good conditions. But you're, you're getting in line to fish stuff, you know? So it, it, if, if you were by yourself, it would be different, but it's, it's not. You're, you're, you're sharing it, so you get it. I'm happy to share it, but I'm just saying that there needs to be a bigger pie to share when we have this level of participation. Yeah, I, I can't argue any of that. I, you know, did you see that over in Wisconsin as well, Jeff? Yeah, we saw it. Like uh, we were talking beforehand, is that I saw increase in pressure, you know, quite a bit on certain bodies of water. But then, 
you know, fortunately I have, it's like I said, there seems like there's in Wisconsin, there's certain areas where people uh, migrate to the Hayward area saw a huge explosion of traffic there. But then it seems like the area that I'm in, the Pelican Lake area, doesn't get hit quite as hard. It's like they scoot on up the Eagle River. And I know the few times that I popped up that way, there was a bunch of, you know, a bunch more pressure up that way. So it didn't necessarily get distributed evenly. I think certain areas within Wisconsin got, you know, the bulk of the pressure increase. I know like south too, you know, those Madison, Pewaukee lakes, I think they all got pounded pretty hard too. So it'll be, like you said, it'll be interesting to see. You know, along with the increased license sales, I mean, technically there should be an increase in funds depending upon where they allocate these funds. So at this point, I would think at some point the DNR should have more funds from this from this year. But we all know that we don't dictate how those funds actually get allocated, unfortunately. But they do work for you. So you got to speak up and say, hey, this is what we want. This is what we want. This is what we want. Squeaky wheel gets the grease. I mean, that's that's how it works in a lot of fisheries management stuff. So. I definitely encourage everybody to speak up, talk to the, talk to your regional managers, call the, call the head office and say, Hey, this is, this is what we're seeing and talk to them because they, I mean, they, they work for you. You buy a license, they work for you. Well, absolutely. And like we, like you had talked about some of the management issues should, should, we wish we could have addressed them much sooner because now you're starting to see the problems. And with muskies, we all know it takes so long for them to, you know, to mature and become, you know, where we want to catch them at that 50 inch level that, you know, in some instances, I don't want to say it's too late for me because I'm, you know, I'm 43, but let's just say it takes 15 years to get to a 50 inch size. If they started tomorrow, I'm going to be, you know, whatever, 58 years old. Well, we're starting to, you know, starting to push that. Just in your prime for throwing supermodels. Yep, exactly. That's the thing. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to have to be after them with, I'm going to have to do a little bit of trolling and stuff like that. I'm not going to be able to throw those double cowgirls like like everybody else is, I'm going to have to try to use different tactics in order to catch them for, you know, at that level. And, but unfortunately that's the reality that we're dealing with as musky anglers is how long it takes to reverse course. It is. And, and, and one thing I, I do have to, to say with, with the Minnesota DNR here, one, one thing that I, I am proud of is that there is, they are always open to communication. So the muskies have been a really big struggle, but coming back to, to Sonny's carry, We've got a guy in our office, Mike Hainer. He's on the he's on the Panfish Committee, and I've had a number of discussions about that. We do have a new program, the Quality Bluegill Initiative, that we've been uh, pushing on for a number of years, and that's finally coming to light. It's not something that happens overnight, but when you're in their ear and they're they're open to listen, and you talk to them, these things can happen. It moves slow, but um, you know you just have to have that communication. Communication is key to everything, right? So so definitely speak out. So, you know, we talk about making changes and getting out and Jeremy, the one thing it seems like is, you know, the, I would say the younger generation, even my generation, if we go to a lot of these meetings and whatever, there's not people my age. And I, I guess it's, you know, they're focused on their careers and raising families and doing everything else. And so time is limited, so they don't do this, but I think it's our, our age group and younger that really have the mindset to you know, to make changes we're we're interested in, in making those changes with higher limits and, you know, lower, lower bag limits and things like that. So I, th- I really think it's one of those things where the, you know, the younger people need to get involved. And I think you've talked about it. You don't necessarily have to go to a meeting. You can, you know, send emails and whatnot to get involved with, you know, to get involved and make your voice heard. You don't have to be physically present. You just have to, you know, be willing to take a little bit of time to, to try to make these changes. 
you, you, you nailed it, Jeff. I mean, that, that's really the case. They're not getting bombarded with stuff every day, but, but uh, having a consistent message coming from a group does get their attention. And, it, you know, they, they, they look at it. So, absolutely. You know, it, it's hard to compete with, a, you know, your, your time, your family. You know, guys in their 20s, 30s, 40s do have a lot of other stuff going on. And if you're later in life and have time and, and can do those things and show up, that's, that's great. But I, I would agree that often the, the younger crowd is underrepresented and it's, it's often just a function of time. And, uh, but it, it doesn't take a lot of time to send, to send an email. So I, I would encourage anybody to do that and uh, let, your, uh, let your voice be heard. Yeah, well, I know the one thing, you know, Brad and I have had conversations about is, you know, making Mille Lacs back to what it used to be, and it would be awesome to see that that get turned around. And, I mean, hopefully, maybe if enough of us band together, we can we can get something done. The one thing about it, sometimes it seems like, Brad has talked about it before, sometimes it seems like there's just almost too much infighting within the Muskie community for us to completely unite and get one common goal done because we're too busy arguing about that girth not being big enough or that size not being what you represent it to be or, you know, whatever. It just seems like we, we just have a hard time uniting. It seems like maybe I'm wrong on it, but it just seems that way. Well, Brad, I don't know if you want to take this or, you know, I can kind of chime in a little bit here too, but no, I I agree that, you know, there there can be some inner conflict with, with that, but, but at the the same time, I, I, I feel like we just said musky fishermen get pigeonholed as like this elite group and only a couple percent of the angling population actually do it. And you guys can talk to this being in business that like, so what if a, a smaller percentage of anglers do it? Look at the contribution to the industry. I mean, look, I mean, I would argue that a musky fisherman is going to spend a hell of a lot more money in the industry paying taxes that are good for the resource that we can use for the resource that, that are, are, are more valuable than somebody buying a scoop of crappie minnows, a hook, and a bobber. I mean, that's your whole year of what you spend for fishing for crappies could be three musky baits. Oh, absolutely. Can you see what I'm getting at? Oh, yeah, I definitely agree with you 100%. Uh, yeah, the musky industry is small, but it's also big at the same point when you look at how many dollars people will spend on musky-related activities, whether, like you said, whether it be just gear, I mean, I strictly deal in mostly gear and the, like sometimes the amount of money people spend on it really just blows me away. That doesn't include, like you said, the boats, the rods, the reels and all that stuff. Cause we don't sell a lot of that stuff. So I don't see exactly that directly related, but I mean, the contribution to the resource and to the economy is <laughs> it's ridiculous. I think, like you said, crappie guys, I mean, you can be set really fast. It's so true. Um, back when I was dealing with uh, the No More Muskies group here in my neck of the woods, I would uh, I'd always have to try to go up and figure out who I'm going to talk to. And I would talk to the resorts, and the resorts were still for muskies. And the reason they were, plain and simple, their, their rooms were still filled after Labor Day. So it isn't just during the main core of the summer normal fishing. The muskie crews, you know, whether they're staying in a hotel, a resort, they're still bringing money to the economy in the area. So, you know, through gas, through meals, whatever. And musky fishermen are serious. I mean, Jeremy said it earlier, fishing from 4.30 till 10 o'clock at night. I mean, that's what they do. So, yeah, for sure. I mean, that's a huge battle that you can you can feed all of that through the economy. And not only that, uh, but it definitely derives right into a local area where those bodies of water might be. 100%. 100%. 
Well, it's amazing on uh, how we can talk a little bit about pressure and then we can go totally down a whole different, <laughs> a whole different route, which is, you know, that's what makes these podcasts fun. So, I mean, getting on to, you know, changing and all that kind of stuff. The one thing I guess I, we can tra- kind of transition out of is uh, social media. You know, uh, we've had people ask us, like, how does social media affect, you know, fishing in general? I, th- I think you guys on the Angling Buzz, if I'm not mistaken, you guys have maybe covered that topic. I could be wrong if I if I am, I'm, I apologize. But do you got any input on, you know, what type of changes you've seen with social media and fishing? Well, I, uh, so I'm not a social media guy. I, I don't have the, the Facebooks or anything. But with our business, we obviously we, we have to we have to be. And the, the biggest takeaway that I've got is just how fast information travels. I mean, it is just remarkable that a fish can get caught. It can get posted. It can be in, in everybody's pocket. It's got a phone knows about it within within a few minutes and stuff just just explodes. So you see this all the time in ice fishing. A, a hot hot bite happens somewhere for pan fish in particular. It's just it can just be wiped clean instantly. And the same thing goes for muskies. We're talking about malax earlier. Somebody gets a fifty six inch on malax, and if you know whatever you've been out there for a few days, I, I fish it a fair bit, mostly for bass and walleye, but. You know, you can be out there and not see a musky boat, and then all of a sudden somebody posts a picture of a 57, and the, there's musky guys all over the place. So it does definitely influence where people go, when they decide to go, and uh, how much effort they're going to put into it. Yeah, I always find it interesting, Jeremy, that, you know, guys are chasing the bite per social media, and it doesn't mean that it was caught that minute or that hour or that day. It, it might have been two weeks ago and it got posted, you know, and that bite's different oh, now. Yeah. But it, it's, oh, it's pretty interesting how it, how I've seen it change, I guess, over the years, you know, and, and the electronics in our boats have changed. I mean, there's so many different factors that have helped fishermen actually fish fishermen. I, I still say fish the fish, not the fishermen. Don't chase a bite. It never usually pans out. Now, I'm, I could say that sometimes it does, but, you know, I, I learned a long time ago, I'm going to fish the fish, and that's where I go. You're, you're 100% correct. I, I couldn't agree more with you, Brad. You know, the, the, the worst thing to me, like uh, a lot of our trips are, are like, it's, it's just on the calendar, so that's where we're going to go. And, like, for me, the worst news is, is like, we're heading up on a Saturday and uh, Thursday, the resort owner is like, man, all these big fish got caught on Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. And it just always seems like, oh yeah, well, everything went nuts and we're, we're going to come right on the tail end of a, of a hot bite. So always, you want to be the one making, you know, making hay, making the news, not the one that's, that's chasing everybody else. And you, you just got to go spend time on the water and that, that just clutters your mind up with, oh, this happened here, this happened there. Like you said, follow the fish, follow the food, just, just go to go to where where you feel confident, and just because somebody caught something there a week ago doesn't mean that that's still good there, you know. Well, it's amazing. I had a couple of guys that uh, were coming up, and they said, "How's the bite been?" And I, I had to be honest, and I said, "It's been tough." And but I said, you know, that's probably good news for you because at some point here they're going to turn on, and you have to look at it that way. I would rather hear a resort owner if I was going to a resort say, "Fishing's been a little bit tough." And I'm like, all right, perfect, because you know it's going to explode at some moment. Exactly. Yep. I agree. Well, I know one of the other topics that we, I don't know if we covered all that, Jeff, but uh, I think we did. Um, One of the other topics that we really wanted to talk to you about, Jeremy, is uh, 
Tall trolling. Maybe we can go down that path. Sure. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I do enjoy trolling. I mean, I, I enjoy fishing however you can, but one of my favorite things to do, not doing it this year, but a lot of this will apply to other places, is trolling on the shield in, in, uh, late in the fall. I mean, I've just had such great fishing during that. It's, a, it's an awesome way to cover water. It's an awesome way to learn a lake better than uh, better than you uh, you do it before from casting. it. You learn a lot of stuff. And um, so fall is a great time, especially when, you know, things start to get cold and it's hard to cast. Your hands freeze up or your reels are freezing up. So it's a, it's a dynamic way to cover water. I don't exactly know where to get started, but a couple of the big, you know, things that I've seen or learned in the last 10 years or so that, that has been real eye-opening for me is how shallow fish are even when there's ice on the lake. So one of the big deals um, that's accounted for a lot of nice fish caught in recent years has been running a board on the inside. So when I first started trolling up on the field, I had this idea that it was, you know, that 15 to 20, 20 feet was a, was a sweet spot to go running a jake back you know, a hundred and some feet. And we, we caught muskies doing that. And uh, a friend of mine, Brian Miller, who spent a lot of time fishing with uh, Pearson and, and Jack Burns and those guys back in the day. And, and I happened to go fish with Justin Godry one time. I learned a lot about trolling up at uh, Miley's place. Um, was that these guys are fishing shallow. Like if you're fishing deeper than eight, you're just missing the boat. And I was like, wow, that was a to me that was a big eye opener so just moving in shallower and then running that inside board with a super shad or it's like a shallow invader with like 10 feet of line back you're running this bait in two to four feet of water and the water is 38 degrees and there's muskies there often that can be the best line that you've got in the water so that you know that to me is it goes to show you this is also true whether you're fishing shallow or deep sometimes that high line a bait that's only down a few feet can be the most productive bait as opposed to a bait that's deeper. So my experience is muskies like to be higher in the water. And sometimes, obviously, grinding bottom is the deal, but often you can fish fish below them. So having a high line has been a, has been a real big deal for me in recent years. I would totally agree with that, Jeremy. And, I, you know, I do a ton of trolling in the month of June for the open water stuff. And every year it seems like I keep shortening my leads, meaning I'm going shallower and shallower in the water column. They're predatory fish. They're looking up. They will feed up. So I would rather be above them than below them. And and that's one of the things I think that you can relate back to the fall as well and what you're talking about. Yeah, absolutely. You know, if you come into all these, you know, and when you come into fishing so many times, you've just got these ideas in your head that, you know, oh, the fish are going to be, fish are going to be deep or they're going to be shallow or they're going to be here. They're going to be there. It's, it's, you can't stick with one thing and say, this is the, the golden ticket. You got to obviously let the fish tell you what's going on. And that's, and that's why it's so effective to have to, to send the, send the outside line out deep with a, with a headlock where you're grinding in that 12 to 15 feet, have a flat stick or a, a jake behind the boat that's running in that eight to 10 and then put one up in four feet. Just I'm talking about contour trolling and, it doesn't take you long to figure it out. If they're really biting, you might, all three lines might be firing all day, but oftentimes you're going to see that it's the, it's the inside, it's the outside, and you just adjust accordingly. Let me ask you this, Jeremy. Um, what are you using for boards, and do you ever use a mass system with, uh, with boards? No, I, I've never used a mass system. So I, I use the offshore boards, and uh, it just depends on the size of the bait. So I'll use the Magnum board. 
uh, at times, obviously just depends on the size of the bait, but I fish a lot of like when I'm fishing in Canada, but this is open water in Minnesota too. A super shad is one of my all time favorite fish catching lures. Just because every, everything bites it. I've got gigantic muskies and I've got huge northerns, walleye, smallmouth, every, everything just, it just bites bites that lure so with that particular bait there's no reason to run a giant board so just your standard walleye board works works perfect with that but if you're going to try to run a, a headlock i mean you need the you need the, the big board for something something like that so i, I don't use the mass system I'm, I'm pretty much i like to have i run a tiller boat so i like to be the guy in the back holding the rod i always like to have the the guy running the boat holding the rod and the guy running the outside line, holding the rod. I just think it's more fun. This is more contour trolling than I'm talking about than the open water thing, Brad, but I think it's really fun when you get to hold the rod, you're feeling the bottom, you're feathering the bait so it's not getting snagged up, you're making contact with bottom. And, and uh, so yeah, that's kind, of, that's kind of how I do it. I'm curious, when you're running those boards, Jeremy, do you walk it onto your line or do you have it free so that... Uh, when a fish eats, it slides down towards the bait or the leader. So I lock it on, uh, and the reason I do that for that inside line is pretty rare that I'm, I'm ever running it more than, than uh, you know, a lot of times it's just like an arm length of line out. It's, it's right behind the board. It's really, really shallow. So you can pretty much walk to the bow of the boat, have the board attached, and net the fish. Um, sometimes I'll let more line out. I'll, I'll take the boards off, keeping the motor keeping the motor in gear, but generally I have the, have the board locked on. So the front clip breaks and you're not fighting the board. And then the, the back end of the board is just, um, just hanging on by that, that last clip. So just because yeah, if you're I've, in I've Canada, sometimes you can lose the board and you got to try to get up over a shell or roof and you can destroy your boat getting the board. Right. Yeah. That's something you've always got to be worried about up there. That's for sure. You know, our water here is a little bit different, but it, it could be that you're relating to a shoreline or a rock pile here in the States too. So yeah, definitely yeah. something to consider. It is. It, it, it definitely is. So, you know, and the other thing that I've, I've seen with trolling in particular too. So, uh, so it's real easy to me to look at like big massive flats and say, all right, this is a great area that I should spend my time trolling. Just intuitively, you think I can spread more lines out. I can cover this big, big piece of water and I should get, uh, should get, get fish on it. But if you're casting off and you're, you're focused on a sharper edge or some, something that might confine the fish more. But when I'm trolling, I'm, I'm often focused on those, those edges. So rather than, rather like if this could apply to Minnesota, I've got a lot more experience in on the shield doing this, but I don't ever look at big, I, I don't really enjoy going to big flat areas. So when I'm fishing, I'm almost always looking for really tight contours so I can stack my three baits in a high probability spot rather than hunting this, this, this needle in a haystack. And I find that the fish tend to be more concentrated there. And that's been, that's been my experience. So focusing more on sharper contours or fish are more likely to dump off or be concentrated on a break as opposed to catching fish over, over big massive flats. I'm not saying it doesn't work. If the fish are scattered at that time of year where they're just, they're, they're everywhere. Yeah. That's a, that's a technique that you've got to employ, but often late in the fall, those sharper drops are where there's just, that's just where a lot of the fish tend to be. I would totally agree with that. And it kind of goes along with uh, our last podcast that we just talked about and relating fish to certain pieces of structure. It seems like, and I, I said this last time too, that I kind of relate it to big bucks. I mean, if you, if you're a deer hunter whatsoever, it's, all about escape routes. So 
you know, I feel like those muskies like those deeper edges where they can escape quickly if they feel they're in danger. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. They definitely seem to, to like those those routes. And, and um, you know, I think, too, some of the, the things that I've seen with how they relate to open water, I've seen some pretty cool things with how how the fish move. So this is kind of my idea that I've, I've had some pretty good evidence to show me this, that so Cisco, for example, this, I'm, I'm going to refer now not to late fall, but more of the, the midsummer thermocline thing. So Cisco, for example, uh, throughout the night they're scattered. So there's just, there's fish here, there's fish there, fish all over. And, and as, as this morning comes, the, the sun starts to come up, you, you'll see the Cisco starts to condense back into tighter schools. And they'll, they'll do that. And below the thermocline, if there's oxygen there, they'll, they'll do it deeper. And as you start to get close to sunset, you'll see the Cisco come up to the thermocline. Now, if you've ever seen Cisco's jumping, flipping around on the surface at night, you would think that the fish are up near the surface feeding on bugs. Well, that's not most often the case. They're actually just coming straight up 25, 30 feet. They're jumping and they're going straight back down. And so I've been able to see that there aren't fish, muskies oftentimes in midsummer, they aren't there in open water. They're in, they're in the cover. So as soon as you get that, that twilight time, the fish are moving from the cover and they're going after the Cisco that are making vertical movement. So this is a huge deal for me when I realized casting open water, I've been trolling forever, you get a fish here, you get a fish there. But when you fish up and down in the top 10 feet, so I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not talking about reeling in a crankbait or swim bait horizontally, I'm talking about taking that swim bait and jigging it from the surface down to 10 feet, jigging it, your bites go through the roof. This is something Al taught me years ago a simple thing in fishing, but sometimes fish want stuff going horizontally, and sometimes fish want things going vertically. And the Cisco are not moving horizontally, they're moving vertically. So the cue for a muskie is something going up and down. And we just don't think about that oftentimes. Now as the sun, um, as the sun goes down and gets later, the Cisco disperse, and the muskies end up going back into the cover. So when we're talking about those escape routes, a lot of times it's just where can I sit I've got quick access to deep water. I'm going to go hunt for an hour and a half tonight, and I'm going to go sit back and cover because I'm comfortable. Well said, well said, Jeremy. And I like the aspect of the vertical approach. I, that's something that I guess I neglect at times, and uh, I have seen it done as well. And a lot of times those fish are going to actually eat it on that fall. And as soon as you start to look oh, yeah. back up, all you do is wait. So what, what kind of baits are you talking about when you're using the vertical approach? You know, so a lot of swim baits, so whether it's, uh, you know, a swimming dog or a Poseidon or a fish with uh, just a 7-inch BMC uh, or 7-inch uh, Big Bite swim, uh, Suicide Shad, that's a really good, a lot of the lakes that have dwarf disco, that's just a perfect imitator with like a three-quarter ounce jig on there and a, and, a, and a treble underneath the jig. I mean, that thing is just, just deadly. You can throw it on bass here and again, everything bites it. Walleyes bite it, pike bite it, muskies bite it. So from what I've seen, those those work those work really good. And of course, um, you know, medusas and, and bulldogs obviously work too. But swim baits have kind of been the thing that uh, a jig basically is what I've been into. And you want it to be light. You don't want something that's going to go fast because the fish are rarely deeper than like ten or twelve feet. Usually they're within the top eight feet. So you want something that's not too heavy so you can keep it in that top eight feet. 
which is kind of challenging to, to jig a bait. Just seems weird near the surface, but it does work. Yeah, that's, that's super interesting. I know, you know, some of the different bites. Are, are you doing that in the fall as well, Jeremy, or is that more of a, a summer open water type fishing scenario? That's, that's more of a summer op- open water type situation. I've had the best luck with that where it's been pretty predictable where the, where the fish are. I mean, they just do this every day when you've got stratified water, not every day, but for the most part, you you can, you can observe it. So, I mean, the the technology we've got today to do this stuff is just, you know, it's it's so incredibly remarkable. So um, in the fall, you know, I I think things change up, change a little bit. They're obviously still falling food, but I really do believe, I mean, when you've got the suite of, 360 and side imaging and 2D sonar, and you, you, you can see, you just know if there's fish there or not, right? It's not, they, they can't hide from you anymore. So the only place they can go if you can't see them is one in the cover, or they lay so tight to the bottom that they're, they don't give you a signal. But if they're up, they're, they're totally exposed. You, you, you can 100% see them. So when they're not there, it only leaves you two places to go, and one is on the bottom, and the other is covered. So that's, that's at least what I've seen. Yeah, that's, that's super cool. So, you know, you kind of mentioned the technology side of it, and one of the conversations that we've had in several different podcasts, but i got to ask you, what is your number one piece of electronics? If somebody, a new angler, was rigging a boat, what would be the number one thing, most important piece of technology that you could place in your boat? What would you say? Well, I, I would have to say it would be a map. So, if you, you know, you you need to know where, where you're going. So it, it'd be pretty hard to go out in the middle of Lax Lake or the middle of Leech Lake or West Battle or Miltona to, to find a, to find a lot of these spots without a good map. So I think a map is probably the, the best way to start. I mean, once, once that technology came out, I feel like that was a, a huge game changer. That's not taking away from, from side imaging or 360 imaging or down imaging. They're all, they're all different, but, to me, you, you really want to have a, a good quality map so you can at least get to the right spot. You know, I would say that if the, the, in my realm, I think side imaging probably was the biggest change that I've seen in all the history of technology that I've been around anyway. I understand where you're going with the map, and I, I won't argue that whatsoever. But, uh, man, side imaging has just really changed the game for me personally. Oh, 100%. If you haven't fished with side imaging or just so everybody knows that we're talking about side imaging. So it's a technology that gives you like a razor thin slice of what's out to the side of you. And so the, it's got a pretty long range, but the shorter the range, the more detail you're getting with this stuff. So when mega side imaging came out, there were rocks that you never knew were there. You're finding deep weed lines, you're spotting fish. There was all, all it's like learning the, the lake over again. It's stuff you could have fished your whole life. And all of a sudden you get this technology. Like I had no idea this is a good spot but I had no idea that there was actually scattered boulders around this weed at you, right? You're like, wow, okay, I guess. Now I know why it's good. So interesting. I mean, I think about for myself, obviously I, I'm a little bit older, but I, I have fished, you know, previous to GPS. And then once I got a GPS, I'll, I'll never forget it. I got a 350A Lowrance. And too, that really yeah. changed my, <laughs> you know, you start marking stuff out and you're going, Oh yeah, that makes sense. You know, you, you're crashing into a structure, you're, you know, laying a waypoint. And it's so funny to me because I still have a lot of those waypoints from back in the day, say 20 some years ago. 
And once the map card came around, I'm like, wow, that makes perfect sense. That's exactly what I thought it was. And then now another level with the side imaging, like you're saying, it's remarkable what we've seen in the last, say, 20 years. It's crazy. It's crazy. I'll share a little story with you about that, that 350, that LMS 350A. So when I lived in Walker, my buddy Pat and I, we knew about, like, so at least, like, we had a cabin by Leech Lake Fish in my whole life. But, you know, hearing from the old-time guys and stuff like that, there was, you know, Bokey Reef was a good spot, and the North Bar was a good spot, and the Annex was a good spot. So there was all these spots that are out in the middle of the lake, and you see guys fishing out there, and we tried fishing, but we never had any real luck. We didn't know really what we were fishing. And so what we ended up doing is we got our hands on one of these, and we ended up going out, like, right after ice out when the beach was a lot dirtier when I lived there. When it was clear, right after ice out on a calm day, and we just started doing transects from, like, Stony Point to Pelican Island. And all of a sudden, like, boom, we see this giant rock pile that was multi reef. And we could put the, we put waypoints on the crown of that. We, we started doing that with all this spot. We learned the North Bar. And then we started seeing other anglers, even guys who'd been doing it for a long time, they would just be drifting an area. They could be three, four hundred yards off the spot. And we were just we just had the most incredible musky fishing I mean it's still I've ever had. It was on that because we had a reference. We could go to these spots where everybody else was just kind of drifting in a in a general area. But you learned that if you make this cast, you catch a fish. And without that technology you could never have done that. Yeah, it's it's totally remarkable. It's one of those things I think nowadays we live in like, I would say almost like the golden age of fishing with all the different advancements that we have. I mean, the people that if you didn't fish 15 years ago and you're just jumping in now, you take a lot of this stuff for granted and how amazing it, it really is and how much more effective it makes you and how much easier it makes your job on the water. Oh, hundred percent. It's just amazing. It's just amazing. It's, it's worth every, it's worth every penny. If you're looking at it, saying I want to get into fishing I know it's expensive, but once you have the technology in the boat, you'll understand why, and you're just going to be rewarded with a better experience all around. Absolutely. So dialing back to your your vertical approach, is this is your vertical approach pretty? Uh, is it an aggressive approach, or is it? I mean, are you really ripping these baits, or are you more lazy, slow fall type of a thing? Not really. So I mean, it's kind of like cast the bait out, let it sink. You know, just drop the bait over the side of the boat and see, you know, how, how fast it falls every second. But it, but it sink and then just kind of basically like I'm, I'm sweeping it, reeling it relatively fast and, and sweeping it and then killing it, letting it, letting it fall. But from what I've seen, the secret is, is to letting it fall vertical. So I can't really, on a long cast, no matter what I do, it's going to come up at, say, roughly a 45-degree angle. Either way, if I, if I sweep it or I jerk it. Um, it's just easier to, to make a lot of casts sweeping it. But then it's giving the bait slack right away when you kill it so it can just go nose down and fall vertical. So you don't necessarily want it to come up at a 45, go down at a 45. Once you get closer to the boat, you can start to, when you, you're, you have a little more control with your rod, you can make the upstroke a little more vertical. But it's, uh, it's the slack line after the pull to make it dive vertical is, is really when I've seen most of the bites take place. Sure. So it's not like an absolute vertical approach like you would like with a bondy bait. A lot of guys will just literally drop those right over the side and they can watch those on their locator. This is, yep. you're still making a regular cast. Casting, yep. The fish are too, they're not going to be by the, I mean, they're 
like I said, they're often five feet down. So if they were there, you, you could see them with your eyes, right? So they're away from you and they're not going to get often real close unless they're following. You might get lucky and see one cruising, but no, it's, it's always, I'm casting. Sure. Then the other thing too, is we have a lot of conversations with a lot of different anglers on trolling speeds. How fast are you, are you generally going like when you're doing this late, later fall trolling? Three and a half to four, you know, right in there, four, two, three, you know, somewhere in there, three and a half to four, two is what I, what is that? What I generally like to, to rip at. So, I mean, it's, that'd be, uh, we'll call that like more of a typical to slightly faster Midwest speed is what I would say on that one. seems like us yeah, Midwest yeah. guys are a little bit slower, you know, you go east and even down south and they're starting to move their baits a lot quicker that more than a four and a half to five mile an hour range and just seems like there's everything's a little bit slower here in the midwest i guess huh yeah i i I guess yeah what what, like what are you guys doing i mean yeah typically for me i was doing some trolling this past weekend and i was somewhere between three and four miles an hour depending upon yeah you know the time like you know i'd make a pass and it would be at three and then i'd make another pass and maybe be at 3.5 and i kind of had fish concentrated in a certain area so i was literally just varying my speed you know pass by pass essentially so yeah yeah absolutely and that's the, that's really the secret is, is to not be steady not set it at 3.5 and and never move right corners obviously are big and yeah a lot of times i'll just gun it too and just get everything ripping you know get it up to six seven miles an hour and then stop and let everything settle back out and then kick it in gear so getting that variability is, is really important too and if you're fishing I, i'm sorry i keep coming back to canada but if you're fishing there, you're always coming in and out when you're contour trolling. So yeah, you might be set at three and a half, but the leg with the baits behind you, they're sometimes they're they're damn near floating to the surface, and other times they're they're ripping really fast on the outside. So there's a lot of variability, and and you see the strikes like you know just as you would expect, like a crankbait hitting a rock. When you make a speed change or, or something happens, you get you get the bite. It's always interesting too that. There's times when a nice even pace will get the job done and the fish want it that way. It's no different than when you're casting. Think about it. Sometimes they want erratic. Sometimes they want speed. Sometimes they want it slow. So you got to think about that approach and the trolling aspect as well. And I think a lot of people just, when they're trolling, they don't consider all those different things that you can do. I mean, it's no different than casting. So as an example, you know, in the last week or so, I was doing some different stuff. I was trolling right around two and a half miles an hour. And when we let off the throttle, basically would slow down to say 1.5 and I'd kick it back in gear. That's when we'd get, you know, we got eaten. So it's, it's strange. And like you said, turning left to right, you know, you're swerving and you're making those different changes. Your inside lines are going to uh, slow down and your outside are going to speed up. So you're doing the same thing by swerving like that as well. I, I think the main point really for, in my mind is, is that anglers don't consider trolling as being, they don't consider all the different things that you can do trolling that you do when you're casting. And I think you can combine the two and actually get more bites. Oh, you, you, you nailed it, Brad. Yeah. There's just not a right and wrong. If this is what, what the fish tell you that they, they want to do and trolling is definitely not putting two rods in the rod holder and just just putting the boat in gear and driving around and having a case of beer like you want to be serious about it like you're saying all of a sudden you, you pick up on these things where i'm coming into to neutral oh they want it or as you're as you're coming into gear boom i get a bite at two miles an hour well i need it slower 
Or if we got two bites and we were doing something and the boat was in a straight line for 200 yards, we did nothing. It's just like slow rolling a bucktail. Sometimes they just want slow and steady. So yeah, the, the, there's, a, there's a ton of tons and tons and tons of variables to it. That's what makes it fun. Well, there's always lots of different ways to trigger muskie. And, you know, like you said, this, I think with uh, like much like Brad was saying, sometimes the guys trolling, they don't incorporate the same triggers into their trolling application as what they would when they're casting. You know, everybody's trying to trigger a fish, whether, you know, whether it be, let's just say a dive and rise bait, you know, on the pause, you have your, your, you know, your pull pause, which causes triggers, you know, which they don't do in their trolling spreads, which is, you know, it, if you incorporate them, it will lead you to ca- eventually catch more fish usually. Usually, that's the thing with muskies. Is usually well, that you know that like it <laughs> gets us back to like last we our last podcast. We talked about some listener questions, and we talk about how like this is kind of how muskies play out. And but muskies don't follow hard fast rules, and there never is a hard fast rule for muskies. There's generalizations, and generally at certain times of the year, this should work, but it doesn't always play off exactly how you would. I think muskie anglers are always looking for like a if you see A, then this is the counter move with B. And if you see this, this would be the other counter move. And it doesn't always play out like a chess a chess match that way. The, the muskies, like I said, that's why I said usually is because they don't play by the same rules. No, they, they, they certainly don't. They certainly don't. So one of my favorite lines, it's taken a while to think in, but it's so true, is my friend Ryan, I don't know what I was doing. I was talking about some bait that I thought was really awesome or whatever and he just reminded me that the only thing objective in fishing is the fish and so when you think about it it's it's so true so whatever you might do or whatever i might do might be different but the results can be the can be the same so yes it's all about experimentation and there's often better ways to do it but there's not necessarily a black and white right and wrong absolutely i think a lot of times too jeremy that you know, if you're doing something a little bit unique, that could trigger the fish when everybody else is doing something the same. You know what I mean? If you got 10 boats doing the same exact thing and you go out and you make a difference, make a change up that nobody else is doing, sometimes that can be the uh, the trigger as well. 100%. Absolutely. And that holds so true to what we were talking about earlier today with, with pressure. I mean, that's um, if, you're, if you're the 10th boat through with a with the cowgirl on the spot, what, what, what makes it the fish any more likely to bite? Maybe it's timing, but you know, what if you're, what if you're downsizing? What if you're throwing different size blades? What if you're, throw, you know, what if you're throwing a spinner bait instead of a bucktail, you know, I'll, I'll, it's whatever. I mean, you got to, you got to mix things, mix things up. So if you know the fish are there, that's the time to experiment, figure out what they, what they, what they really want. If you don't know, have any idea where the fish are, then, then it's definitely time to stick with what, you have supreme confidence in until they, they show up. And confidence can be key. Those certain confidence baits that we all have in our boat definitely sometimes is the key. We talked about that in the last podcast as well. You know, people always ask, how long do you fish with a bait before you switch? Well, <laughs> that's a loaded question, right? I, and I just, I really think that if people spent their time with their baits that they feel the most confident in, they're probably going to fish different and they're going to catch more fish. I agree a hundred percent. I still am a lure junkie and I just love having tons and tons of baits in the boat. And I, I like to be the guy that's always changing lures to see what, what might be going, but who's ever behind me, it's going to be like, if it's the summertime, like you're throwing a bucktail, like somebody is, 
never going to not have this thing on. It's just how it works. Like, oh, we're not seeing anything. Nothing's happened. But yeah, but by the end of this, what what's on what it's what's going to catch the fish? It's almost always a bucktail. You, you know what I mean? Like, you got to stick with the tried and true. But if you can have some variety in the boat, that's when you can you can learn a little bit too. Yeah, that that is for sure. I know. You know, as a guide. I carry so many baits in the boat, and it's so funny because the baits that we're typically using are laying on the deck. And really, I mean, why do I need all these tackle boxes? Because I go to these, you know, and I do this. But uh, it's always cool to have extra options, that's for sure. Oh, it is, yeah. And that's the fun of musky fishing is the is the baits. Like, well, you guys, I mean, they're just they're fun. First of all, I mean, obviously. They're meant they're meant to catch fish, but they're just the the baits themselves are just so cool. And like if you get a fish on a new bait or whatever, you're just you're stoked about it. They're just I don't know. I I, I just love musky lures too. So I, I'm the same way. I carry I carry tons of them. But like you said, a lot of times after a couple of days of fishing, there's four lures are on the deck, and that's really all I'm throwing. Even though I can't put anything else in the back of my truck because it's full of musky baits and there's no room left in the compartments. You know. We're lucky that uh, Jeff with Team Rhino, he provides a ton of options. And the neat thing about Team Rhino is some of the custom stuff that he does as well. Well, the colors you guys have on, like, some of the, the, the soft baits, too, not only hard baits, but, I mean, that is cool stuff. That is really cool stuff. Yeah, well, like I said, I was going to say, I, I like musky baits so much, I turned it into an entire business. I mean, this is, that's the reason why I got into it. I used, to, I, like, I think I, sometimes I would just buy different colors and have manufacturers, you know, paint me up something special just so I could see how cool, it, how cool it would turn out. And now I do the same thing, except instead of me collecting all these lures, I, I, I generally try to sell them. Occasionally, some of them end up in my tackle box, though, which, because they have to, you know, I have a, I have an addiction to, uh, big crankbaits. I love them. I don't use them a lot this time of year. I love them, but I just like to, they're awesome. I don't know, like a headlock or a 14 inch Jake or a matlock. I just love, I love collecting them. They're, they're awesome. I don't know why I like them so much, but they're, they're some of the coolest things around. Oh, for sure. Yeah. They're, they're, it's, I mean, it's art. It's come on. It's musty fisherman's art. Yep. No doubt. All right, Jeremy, we want to thank you again for taking some time out of your schedule to come out and talk musky fishing. It was it was everything we had hoped it would be. You've been on our list of guys to contact for a long time, and I'm glad we finally got this one to uh, to make it happen. So for people that are looking to see what you do with Linder Media, what's the best way they can do to find everything you're up to? Sure, yeah. I mean, check, uh, check out our YouTube channel, Angling Edge. We've got a YouTube channel. Angling Buzz has a YouTube channel. You can visit our website, anglingedge.com. We've got a bunch of cool stuff on uh, another website called Fishhead TV, where we've got all of our content is up up there to see as well. So those are those are some great spots to uh, check out what we're doing. Awesome. Well, once again, you know, we just want to thank you for everybody's busy, and we won't, you know we thank you for taking an hour out of your day to talk musky fishing with us. We'd love to have you back on in the future. We say that all the time, and then it'll be six eight months before we get somebody back on. So if you don't hear from us soon, that's that's what happens. But anyways, I, you know, we're, we're all busy and everybody's got stuff going on. I know it's you guys, especially busy with doing all the, uh, all the TV shows you have going on. So that's why we want to thank you again for, you know, just taking that hour out of your day to come talk musky fishing with you or with us. We really appreciate it. So thank you very much. Well, yeah, I'm happy to do it. Musky fishing talk is always up, up my alley. So thank you guys so much. I, I appreciate it as well. And we will uh, cross paths down the road here. Perfect. Thanks again, Jeremy. All right, thank you guys.